breeze. Hello, everybody. Welcome to News for the Soul. This is Daniel Brinkley. This is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. From the heart of Vancouver, what a great place to bring news for the soul. I know, isn't it perfect? Remember that movie Dead Zone, Christopher Walken? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like that for real. I think reasonably accurate, too, honey. Oh, that's an understatement, honey. (laughs) Okay, everybody, take a deep breath. We We know that we choose to come to this world, and we're chosen to come to this world, and we've come for breath. We breathe in for ourselves and out for spiritual involvement. And as we breathe these moments, let's open up our hearts and open up our souls. And let the true awareness of news for the soul make its impact now and forever. Well, Danny, Danny just mentioned the heart attack. That is how he died, isn't it? Yes. Wow. Actually, two heart attacks right off one right after the other. Yeah, that's what I Wow. No, I had him. I, this is not a, you know, I have him. You know, the whole thing about the spirituality and, and the wealth or sustainability not going together, I just think is the biggest load of crap, you know? <laughs> I mean, what have you Man, got? Like it is, girl. <laughs> well, really, what have you got to give anyone if you've got nothing? Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Candace is going bye-bye. Yes, um, I had this really bizarre experience where I got sucked through a wall, like a solid wall. During the time that I was knocked unconscious, uh, uh, an angel came to me. People's solidity began to morph with the geometries, so you'd see little bits of their, like their hand began to go missing. And this particular angel, as I recount in the book, uh, said to me that I had chosen the wrong path in life, that I was to choose a new path, and it was to be a path of peace, I was to teach peace. Lots of amazing things coming up for this hour. News for the Soul, um, Steve Bond, back in one minute. I'd have to believe that the times that we're in are very important to us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Because if we're not really, really careful in paying and complimenting news for the soul, we're about to find ourselves wrapped up in something that will literally encompass the world. Yeah. And not from the viewpoint that we're looking at it from. And so tonight, it is an empowerment. A place to become aware, a place to change, a place to not become fear-based, but become loving. Let's all take that deep breath. Breathe. Staying connected to each other and reminding each other about, you know, holding this energy, not getting sucked up into all that, like all that garbage on TV for the last three days, just showing all the reruns of all the people falling out of the skyscrapers on the 11th, and, you know, just over and over wallowing in the low frequency. Creating a mindset. Exactly. That's the mindset. That is, a, that is a controlled mindset to change people's consciousness, exactly. to create a way at which that they can be controlled to make a decision like mm-hmm. war or not war. Totally.
you know, I, I figured, hey, talk is cheap. Which I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say on a talk show. But I mean, compared to doing and experiencing, it's cheap, right? So experiencing let's experience some of what you do now. They're driving. Should they be concerned? No, 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 no. But uh, turn the radio up a little bit. Oh, yeah. Grandfather. Carry me, Grandfather. Shitehoka. Tina Quijota, Grandfather. Quayo We are all it, and that's really what cosmic consciousness is about. I mean, Christ consciousness was the last age. We're in cosmic consciousness now, and cosmic consciousness is, oh God, we all are God. You just tuned in, <laughs> and you're wondering what the heck you just tuned into. We need to do that. Uh, I don't care if it's prayer. I don't care if it's conversation. I don't care what it is. But the one thing that people need to do is hold themselves accountable for their reactions and for the manner in which they interpret the nature of the crisis that is now at work on this planet. The experiments that were done between 90, 95, 98, what they're telling us, Nicole, first of all, is they, they are confirming beyond any shadow of a doubt that we communicate with our world through a previously unrecognized form of energy. Uh, I'm not going to say it's new. It appears to have been there for a long time, but it's never been recognized. Uh, this form of energy works beyond the bounds of space and time. Information moves through this field of energy faster than... Uh, than the principles of light say that it should. This is one of the mysteries. So, let's let this night and what news for the soul is about, like we always say, it's news for the soul. It's not for the, the conscious as much as it is for the true spiritual side of us that drives the nature of our lives, that makes us seek, it makes us seek understanding and yearn to be closer and closer to what is true reality. This is a, a telephone uh, call where I'm speaking with the mother of a 23-month-year-old child. At the beginning of the clip, you hear the mother talking, you hear me laugh, then you hear the baby go goo gaga. Let's listen together. Entirely indecipherable uh, baby babble. But backwards, the secret message, I can hear this child say, I spank him. starting to study the space between the molecules. Daniel called it the exotic exonynosphere. And what they found is the space between the molecules vibrate to the exact same frequency as love. So in my book, another word for love is God. So when they say love is the glue that binds the universe together and love is all there is, science is actually starting to prove that. Africa! 
Visit newsforthesoul.com anytime to hear all of our shows, read positive news, and interact with like-minded people from around the world. Now let's get back to the show. Welcome to News for the Soul. This is Daniel Brinkley. This is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Okay, everybody, take a deep breath. We know that we choose to come to this world, and we're chosen to come to this world, and we've come for breath. We breathe in for ourselves and out for spiritual involvement. And as we breathe these moments, let's open up our heart and open up our souls and let the true awareness of News for the Soul make its impact now and forever. You're now tuned in to News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. To have all that going on because he's here, he's back, and we're excited about that. Dr. Bruce Lipton, who you recall, obviously, from the What the Bleep movie and our earlier interview, which uh, took News for the Soul audience by storm. Lots of rave reviews on that one. DrBruceLipton.com is the website and his gift is bridging science and spirit so let's dive in welcome back dr lipton well thanks for this wonderful opportunity again it's our pleasure all the way um your interview last time was riveting and we had lots of great feedback as i was saying and because you you kind of connected a lot of dots for people you know a lot of people kind of go around thinking i think there's something you know that's this that this goes with this and this connects with this, but we don't know. But you bring the science background in to kind of go, ah, there it is. Well, for me, it's kind of exciting because I really wasn't into this field at all, and I wasn't spiritual. And and when I started to uh, follow the path that science was leading me, I was like in total shock when I realized, oh my God, spirituality and consciousness are are primary. And it was a big surprise because uh, I, I was teaching genes and biochemistry and machine-like capacities of the human body, and uh, the fact that there's a live operator behind it was surprising. Interesting. That's, that's when you were, you were noting sort of the observer effect. Well, yeah, I, actually, what, I, what the research was really involved with was that um, cells are like miniature people in that uh, every cell has every, liv- every functional system that we have in our body is already present in every single cell. So every cell has a digestive or respiratory, uh, nervous system, reproductive system, etc. And when I started to dive into this, I, tried, I was looking at, uh, well, where's the nervous system of the cell? And, and, of course, what I was teaching at that time years ago was that the nervous system was the equivalent of a nucleus where all the genes were because the conventional belief is genes control the biology and therefore genes control life. And, and I you know, was teaching some, somewhat the same kind of ideas in medical school, but my research on, on cloned cells uh, started to reveal that, no, that the behavior was not apparently controlled by the DNA. In fact, some of the experiments that I did uh, removed or destroyed the DNA in a cell. 
And, and, and of course, the logical uh, point behind the experiment is if the DNA controls the cell like the brain, then if you destroy the brain in any living organism, the immediate consequence of that is death. And yet, when I destroyed the DNA or removed the nucleus from a cell, the cell didn't die. In fact, the, the surprising part was that it, w it was carrying on with all the same behavior and coordinated uh, functions that it had before I pulled out the nucleus. So, I, I mean, it's like I'm looking at it thinking, well, obviously something is coordinating, controlling the functions of the cells that keep it alive and, in, the, in the environment, and yet it can't be the genes. And that's where all of a sudden I started to go off on this tangent to say, so where is that control coming from? Uh, the make a very short story is after a lot of research, uh, I was led to the cell membrane, which is the equivalent of the skin of the cell. And what it turned out is this, this cell membrane, which in the microscope looks like nothing. It looks like a piece of saran wrap. It's got hardly any visible structure to it. It's so Actually, the cell membrane is so thin that biologists didn't even know that the cell membrane really existed until the late 1940s when the electron microscope was developed because it, it required uh, magnifications that were available only in an electron microscope, not in a light microscope, to see that it was there. But the big surprise was since the 19, late 1940s, it was found that every living cell has the, a cell membrane and that all the cell membranes physically and functionally are the same, whether they're amoeba or a human. And so uh, when I started to track it down, that was the big surprise because, as I said, people looked at the simplicity of the structure in the microscope and said, oh, well, obviously that's so simple. It can't be doing anything really except acting, acting as a skin and letting certain things in and letting certain things out. Well, that was true, except they didn't realize that in letting certain things into the cell and letting certain things out of the cell, that wasn't a passive process. That was very active, meaning the membrane was controlling that. And, and then, but looking at the structure, said, yeah, but it, it's so simple, a structure, that we, we just relegated the, the membrane to a passive thing because it was so simple. The big surprise was is that in that simplicity was elegance in, that, in this regard, that the cell membrane ha is the molecular equivalent of a computer chip. And, and the, so the skin... Uh, it, it is like a, a computer that reads the environment. On one side of the skin is the outside world, and the other side of the skin is the inside world. And the skin, being the interface between the two, becomes aware of what's going on in the outside world, what's going on in the inside world, and in its interface function, it becomes an information processor that reads, let's say, the outside world, and then adjusts the inside world's function to meet the demands of the outside world. Now, all this is getting complicated, except for the fact that a human is made in the image of a cell. And why that is interesting, because then from that parallel story, I would have to say, well, then the skin of the human is the brain. And in fact, it is. <laughs> uh, and that's from an embryology point of view, that the human brain is derived from the skin. And so we said, oh, well, it is exactly the same as the cell. And so it really reinforces the belief that if you understand how this membrane works, you understand the information processing or consciousness to a certain simple degree that occurs in a cell. And what's the point? And the point is this, is that the cell isn't pre-programmed by genes. The programming of genes creates a physical cell. 
but the programming of genes doesn't tell the cell what it's going to do, when it's going to do it, and why it's going to do it. It doesn't do anything. The, the, the genes just make the parts. We gave a little extra credit to the genes. We gave them the ability to control things like cause cancer and things like that. So we, we all walk around thinking about these little things inside of us called genes that are like pushing the levers and making us do things. And that was like, well, that was a misinterpretation, it turns out. And why that's important to understand is because if we believe that the genes control us, then we become victims of heredity, meaning, well, I didn't pick the genes, and the genes apparently control me, and therefore I can't do anything about it. I can't change them. I'm stuck with them. Mm -hmm. Therefore, my life, being controlled by genes, wasn't in my control. So uh, that was the belief system. The new belief system says, "Uh uh-uh, that the behavior of the cell is controlled by the response to the environment. And it's sort of like stimulus response. But the interesting thing is, in humans, the skin develops into this elaborate brain that lies between the environment and the biology, so it's like the interface. And the brain reads the environment and reads the signals, what's going on, and then adjusts the behavior of the biology to match what's going on. No problem so far except for this. When you get to the level of complex brains like in the human, the brain is also an interpretation device. So when we look at the world, we interpret what we see, and through that interpretation, then we adjust our biology to meet what we see. Now here's, here's the fly in all the ointment, and that is, well, interpretation is learned on experience and teaching and our life, you know, our, our, our life actions. So basically it says, well, as we interpret the, the environment, are we interpreting it correctly or are we interpreting it with a bias or are we just playing out misinterpreting what's going on why is that relevant because since the interpretation controls the biology the accuracy of the interpretation becomes very relevant if we if we make inaccurate assumptions then we adjust our biology and completely and inaccurately and so all of a sudden oh it's the way you see life that controls your biology and that's really the fundamental uh, resolution of all that research. It says we are not robotic automatons. We are adjusting our biology with our nervous system, and our nervous system uh, is doing that adjustment based on its life experiences. And since that is the issue, then experiences that give me more truth about life then adjust my biology correctly. But experiences that are misinterpreted, when I adjust my biology to a misinterpretation, then I've misadjusted my biology because the interpretation was wrong. So, bottom line, it's how you see it, and it's what you believe about life that controls our biology. Now, do our genes have any effect on how we're interpreting currently? Well, uh, yeah, now here's, this is a very important point because the gene, the, I said the genes lay out the structure of the biology. If the genes are, let's say, mutated or defective, then in the assembly of our biology, it's sort of like uh, if there's a, a gene that's not working right, it's sort of like miswiring the, uh, the, the machinery, let's say, okay? And as a result of uh, if there are errors in the genes, then the assembly of the body is in, incorrectly assembled, and so therefore when I meant to push A button, B button got pushed because of the wiring got messed up. So I gotta say, okay, here's the issue. 
genes affect the wiring and the organization of the system. But here's the catch. 95% of the people on this planet came here with an adequate set of genes to provide for a healthy functioning machine that should provide happiness, health, and prosperity throughout our lives. And so therefore, I have to say, okay, 95% of us cannot really say that issues in our lives stem from bad genes, okay? That 5% of the people can say, look, my life isn't working good because I, I got this, you know, hereditary problem that I picked up and that it's interfering with my life. But that's a small percent. And why is that relevant? It says, well, mo the, the largest portion of the population cannot fall back and say, the things that in my life are, are not working right is because of my genes. And in that particular case, then all of a sudden we say, well, if it's not the genes, then it must be the responsibility of the nervous system that, that is uh, altering the biology at this point. And then we shift the effort or the, you know, the, the focus point from a mechanical defect of the biology to a functional defect as a result of the way we're programming our lives. That's different for this reason. If genes are defective, I can't do anything about it. That's the way it is. But if the genes were okay and then I make it defective, ah, then there's a something. That's where all of a sudden I can put my hands on the machine and say, well, if I made it defective, I can also make it effective again. Mm -hmm. And I have power. And this is why I'm so excited about the new biology, because there's a tendency that we have taught people over the years, and people have bought, especially the lay audience has bought that, they're genetic automatons. That anything that goes wrong in their life, cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, Alzheimer's, arthritis, whatever, is a consequence of, oh, I have defective machinery. And it turns out, no, it doesn't look that way anymore. It looks like that our lifestyle is really the responsible element. And why that's relevant? Very simply, it's easier to fix and change my lifestyle than it would be to change my genes. So all of a sudden, rather than being victims, we get to realize that we were involved, we become responsible, but if we own responsibility, then we own the ability to correct our lives, put it back on track, and become the healthy, happy, loving people that the genes offered us. So by changing our lifestyle, uh, do you mean you know what we're physically doing or what we're thinking or... Both of those very much so, and, and that's really, really important because, uh, just a simple point, um, the American Cancer Society for about 50 years has invested millions and millions of dollars looking for cancer genes, and this search has really been fruitless because there really aren't any genes that were really specifically causing cancer, and that uh, genes were involved with the cancer, but we also started to recognize, yeah, but the person who, is ha who has the cancer is some way influencing the expression of their biology. So all of a sudden, the point of focus starts to get away from looking for defective genes. And so the American Cancer Society, just about a month ago or so, released a, a, an extraordinary statement from my point of view, because after all these years of looking for genes, they came out and said, and it's, an, it's a conservative estimate, 60%, and that's still very conservative, 60% of cancer is avoidable by changing lifestyle and diet. And, and why this becomes important all of a sudden is after all the years of people getting cancer and then we're looking in there as scientific sleuths going in there trying to be the detectives and say, okay, what caused the cancer? Where are the genes and all that? We now back up and realize 
my goodness, the person who has the cancer was pretty much involved with getting that cancer. It wasn't an accident. And if we don't tell people this, and they're not educated in this, then they still walk around as victims. And, and what the problem, of course, is a victim, you can't do anything about it. But if we start to recognize, as the American Cancer Society has, oh, you're involved with creating this cancer, therefore, if the change the way your life is regarding activities, exercise, diet, thoughts, a very, very important thought, if we understand that these are contributing to cancer, then we will be given tools to work with that we can repair or avoid those cancers. And why uh, that's just wonderful is because we are not victims. And, and of course, victims make you helpless, and, and we aren't far from helpless. We are very powerful in regard to this. So they've now come out and said basically healthy lifestyle and that's it? Well, they, they said 60%. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. As far as we know, 5% of cancer has hereditary linkage, meaning that there, there are genes that will have a propensity to express a cancer that run in families, but it's 5% of the population that have the 5% of the cancer people. Or, or got a cancer because of a propensity of genes that were not very effective. But that's just, well, what, what about the other 95% of cancer patients? Uh, they cannot claim that, that the cause of their cancer was heredity. Ah, well, as soon as you say if they can't claim that, then, of course, the big question is, well, then what did cause it? That's when we start to go back and say that the way they respond to life, the way they they uh, they live and their how they manage emotions and stress and all these other things are very influential in in uh, initiating and you know uh, keeping a cancer going. Now, what about the? I mean, so many many people in the consciousness path, many of them subscribe to well, I'll think positively and it will not happen or it will go away. I, I love that because, uh, you know, that, 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 that would make it real simple. And, in fact, for some people it works, but for the majority it doesn't work. And, and the issue is, well, if I'm telling you that my thoughts are in some way involved with, you know, creating a cancer because of my you know, I- incorrect thinking processes or the way I uh, uh, ca- make a response, an emotional response to the stresses uh, is inappropriate. Um, well, the, the issue about that is that, um, if I say, okay, just change my thoughts, and I will, therefore, I won't have cancer because I'll respond differently. That is cool, except for this fact, that 95% or more of our behavior is not from the conscious mind, meaning that less than 5% of our behavior in a day-to-day uh, activity comes from conscious processing. 95% or more of our neurological activity comes from unconscious or subconscious programs. Why is it relevant? The answer is that the subconscious mind and the conscious mind are different in regard to power of you know, information processing, like computers. Imagine that the conscious mind is a computer and the subconscious mind is a computer. Two different computers operating in your head at the same time. The difference is this. The subconscious computer is a million times more powerful as a computer than is the conscious mind computer. So uh, fact number one, subconscious, million times more powerful. Fact number two, 95% or more of our behavior every day comes from the subconscious mind. So it says on a day-to-day basis, uh, 95% of your, your behavior comes from programs in the subconscious mind, 
the conscious mind, which can have the positive thoughts, works no more than 5% of the day with this very tiny processor. And the point is, well, how much, you know, how much of an opportunity uh, do you have to have the conscious mind override the programs of the subconscious mind? And the answer is, well, geez, the, the one is, one of them's, you know, the subconscious working 95% with a million times more powerful processor. You just stand back and realize, geez, consciousness would have a tough time beating that. And in fact, it does. And that's why when people really talk about positive thinking, some things they talk about are the, you know, is willpower. And I emphasize the word power because what you're trying to do is take that small processor of consciousness and override the large processor of subconsciousness. It's not very effective. So the issue is, well, then, what's the problem? The problem is this. My conscious mind could have thoughts of being healthy and happy and living in harmony, which is wonderful. But if I was raised in an environment where my belief systems that were programmed into my subconscious mind give me different perspectives, my belief systems I acquired as, a, as an infant and as a young child tell me that the world is not supporting me, that uh, I'm less than complete, I don't deserve things, I'm not good enough, the kinds of things that kids hear a lot. Those are the programs that are operating in the subconscious mind 95% of the day, while the 5% of the day you're thinking and wishing, please, positive thoughts, everything is wonderful, life is great. 95% of the day the subconscious program is saying, not good enough, don't deserve things, you know, whatever those things are, uh, you do the math. And the answer is, yeah, positive thinking is real difficult to, 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 to uh, change that because there, it isn't changing the subconscious mind. It's just it's two processors going at the same time. And interestingly enough, when you're doing positive thinking, you're in your head like in your mind. You don't have to be alert in what's going on. So while you're doing positive thinking and you're using your consciousness like in a, in a mind state out of body in a sense of thinking good thoughts, the subconscious mind's running the show even while you're thinking positive thoughts. And if the subconscious mind has programs that are not in line with the conscious thought programs, well, who's going to win, conscious thought or program? And the answer is subconscious program is going to win. And that's why even in the process of thinking positive thoughts, you, you may even be shooting yourself in the foot without seeing it. So it's like, oh, big surprise. that it, it, Just because we become conscious of something, it does not change the tapes in the subconscious mind. So the most critical work, it seems, that we can be doing here is changing our subconscious thoughts. Well, th that's exactly what it is. And we have to recognize is that the first six years of our lives, that our conscious mind wasn't really engaged according to EEG activity. When you look at brain activity and you look at a baby just born and look at this EEG activity through the first six years of this child's life, you'll find that there's very low EEG levels. You know, and, and people that know EEGs, the, the low levels are called delta and theta. Consciousness is a higher frequency, a higher vibration, which is called alpha and beta. A child up to six is predominantly in delta and theta. It's not even in consciousness. Why, why you say, well, why would that happen? And the answer is real interesting, is that the first six years of a child's life is involved with downloading all of the information about how to live in culture and how to live in society, all the rules, all the etiquette, all the morals, everything. That's being downloaded. And a child is learning this kind of stuff with an extremely high rate of, of uh, learning ability. As a matter of fact, a child less than six 
is really in a state of super learning, meaning when you're less than six, you can learn three languages at exactly the same time and distinguish each one as a separate language. When you get past six and you try to learn a language then, now learning one language is a difficult task. And so what, is it, what, what was going on in the first six years that was called super learning, and the point is because of the low EEG activity we express in that first six years of life, a child is essentially in a hypnotic trance. It's not in a conscious state. It's just downloading. So whatever the parents are doing, the child is observing it. Whatever the parents say, the child is recording it. If the parents say the kind of things that you hear uh, uh, you know, at Target or K-Bart when you see the family pushing the carriage around, the kids are acting up, and the parents yell at the kids, you don't deserve that. You're not good enough. They don't realize if that child is less than six, the child isn't acting in consciousness. It's just downloading. I'm getting a program. What is my program? Not good enough. I don't deserve things. Why is that relevant? Because once that program is installed in the subconscious, now I'm an adult 30 years later, 95% of my behavior is not coming from consciousness. It's coming from subconscious. Yeah, but if the subconscious program said, I do not deserve or not good enough, for example, then, well, I'm 30 and 40 years old, and my conscious mind is like thinking about, well, on the job, Gosh, I'm really, I know I could get this raise. I'm good. I'm better than most of these people. And conscious thinking is giving you all these positive thoughts. Yeah, I could get the raise. I could go on a vacation. All these wonderful things I'm going to plan. Well, you're thinking those. Your subconscious is running the show. Yeah, but what's the program in the subconscious? That one says, not good enough. You don't deserve things. Well, if that's what the program is, then the neurological behavior will have to be coherent with that program. If it says, I do not deserve things, that I cannot do things that will manifest reasons for deserving things. Because it said, I do not deserve things. So the mind will create behaviors that will lead to the fact that, no, I do not deserve things. So my conscious mind is very positive, very involved with the fact that, yeah, I'm going to be very successful in this job. And while you're thinking those things, the subconscious mind is running the show where the program says, no, you're not. And you don't see it, and that's the invisible part. And, and people don't see their subconscious behaviors that are limiting and self-sabotaging. Uh, I'll give you a great example. Let's say you know a woman and you know her mother, and you realize that they're pretty similar parallel behaviors. They're almost the same at some point. I, I, be very careful <laughs> if you say to this woman, you know, you're just like your mom. Back away, because she's going to say, what are you talking about? I mean, she'll be like in shock that I even said something like that. And the fact is, well, why should she be in shock? The answer is, when she's playing those programs that she got from her mother during those first six years of life, they're coming from the subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind plays programs when the conscious mind is busy, like thinking positive thoughts. I'm thinking positive thoughts, but the subconscious mind is going to play the other program. But when you're thinking positive thoughts, you're not observing your own behavior. And that's the big issue. When the subconscious mind is playing its programs, it does so because the conscious mind is busy doing other things. If I was fully conscious, like Buddhist mindfulness, fully conscious, not relying on the subconscious tapes, then I'm running the show fully all the time with consciousness. But my goodness, there, there are so few people out there that are that level of consciousness that they don't realize that most of their 
their lives are coming from subconscious beliefs, and, and they don't see them. And that's why it's a shock to most people uh, it, it, when they, they, they sometimes see their behavior and they're looking and they realize, oh, my God, what, behave, what am I doing? And it's a shock to them because normally they never see this behavior as playing all the time anyway. So our failure is subconscious has programs running 95% of the day, and when it runs, we're not generally aware of it, and therefore we never really see our own selves sabotaging our own selves. And as a result of that, when life doesn't work out, their immediate tendency is to say, well, the, the world, the universe, the universe was against me. And, there, and why is this a, 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 a mistake? And that is because we probably were self-sabotaging ourselves, but we didn't see it, so we must blame something else. And that has been our history up to about now. And that is, oh, the universe is controlling me, and I'm just a victim in this world. And it's like, no. Unfortunately, even physicists are coming around and telling us the whole universe is mental. <laughs> it's, it's immaterial. It's mental and spiritual. And the relevance about that from a physics point of view is the observer creates the reality. I am an observer of my own life. I create my own reality. My mistake is that I don't see that my subconscious programs got involved with that. And that's where if I put that back into the formula, then I see, oh, if I was aware of my subconscious programs, I could change them. And by changing them, I could change the outcome of my life, the printout of my life, more or less. So is that the first step, the first key to getting this crap out of there, then, is becoming aware of what's in there? Right, because we, almost, almost all of us have self-sabotaging belief systems. We, but we didn't install them. That's, that's the big point. It's not, I can't say, oh, yeah, I, I created a belief that I want to shoot myself in the foot. I, I, no, no. My first six years, I downloaded that from the, the way I experienced the environment, which is having people like my parents tell me, that uh, I'm less than whole, that I'm not powerful, that I can't do things. And why is that relevant? Because as soon as they say that, if I'm less than six, that's tape recorded in my subconscious because my consciousness isn't there. So you go back to that, that, that little story about like the, the parents and the kids in Kmart, and they're dragging around the kids, and the kids start acting up, and, and the parents get angry and yell, you don't deserve things. If the kid is less than six, that's a straight download. I, Bruce Lipton, do not deserve things, subconscious program. When I get to be seven or eight or nine, and the same event happens, now I'm conscious. And guess what? I can now see a bigger picture. I say, oh, yeah, well, my parents want to get home in a hurry because they have to get dinner ready because guests are coming, and I'm slowing them down uh, by jumping up and down demanding I want this toy, and that they yelled at me not because I don't deserve things. They yelled at me because they want to hurry up and go home, and I'm slowing them down. That's consciousness. Less than six, we don't have that ability. That's why, very interestingly, the, the Jesuits uh, were very proud. They would say, you give us a child till it's six or seven. It will belong to the church for the rest of its life because they knew that if I can program the child by six or seven, after that, this program will play for the rest of its life. And they already knew that. So we have to catch on to knowing that, okay, we were the ones that were programmed between six and, you know, before six or seven, and that whatever went into that programming is built into our subconscious. And it started in utero. <clears throat> this is really critical because it says, 
if a child is uh, uh, developing in a woman, uh, let's say a couple, and they look at this child as like an unwanted child or something that, oh, my God, is throwing a monkey wrench in our life plan, these emotions and beliefs that are carried between the parents are transmitted to the child. Even before the child's born, it already knows the concept of rejection. And, and this becomes important because we used to think that the brain of the child wasn't really working until right near birth. Now we know that the brain of the child is downloading memories by midway through pregnancy. And wow. once you start to realize that, oh, my goodness, and what kind of memories is a, is a child downloading? Well, simple ones. Uh, if you play music to that child through the abdominal wall, uh, you know, put a speaker on there or something like that, that child can hear the music and learn it. So when a child's born, you play that music, it automatically knows that music. If the father talks to the baby uh, through that abdominal wall, then as the father is talking, the baby hears that, learns it. The baby is born. The father opens his mouth and says something. The baby immediately knows who that is. So these are the kinds of things that they're learning. But what else? And I'll tell you right away. The mother's emotions and the chemistry that organizes her body to respond to the world that she lives in are part of the blood. And so while in OBGYN, when a woman is carrying a child, the doctor usually says, well, uh, are you eating well? Are you taking vitamins? Are you exercising? And that, that's about all they really ask. And the reason why there's so little uh, information requested is that the belief that we taught those doctors is that this baby is genetically controlled and the development is all totally genetically controlled so that all the parents have to do is provide the nutrients, the development of it will be taken care of by genes. Now we realize, uh-oh, big mistake, <laughs> <laughs> that those genes are being adjusted in response to the baby's perception of the world, which is via the mother. So if the mother sees the world as a threatening place and she has emotions and that are not really supportive and healthy, that she's afraid or concerned or in fear in some kind. The emotions are the chemistry in the blood. So as the blood crosses the placenta, yes, it does nourish the child, but it has more in the blood than nourishment. It has all the emotional chemicals and all the organizing chemicals for the mother's physiology cross into the placenta as well. Point, the baby is feeling and sensing and experiencing what the mother is sensing and experiencing. If the mother is unsure, unsure about life, the child is getting a program that life is, is not very supportive. And as a result, it will change the genetics of the child. And this is what now the big point that we started to realize is that the child is actually being programmed in utero. It started in utero, and then for the first six years, it is all programming. So we look at our lives today, and we look at it, and we can say, uh, is my life wonderful, healthy, happy, and prosperous, or not? If it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, if it's not, then we've had a tendency to say, well, that's just the way life treats you, or that's just my heredity, because that was the education that we received, that we were just victims of life and victims of genes. And the new biology says, uh-oh, whole new picture. We are creating this life we didn't know we were being programmed, and we are operating from those programs most of the day. Now that we become aware of this, then we become empowered to go back into the system and look at that programming. And that's where our freedom comes from, our options to, to change our lives. 
is to identify, do we have beliefs in our subconscious mind that are sabotaging us? And why is that relevant? Because then we're being sabotaged when we don't even see it happening by ourselves. If we identify those beliefs and change those beliefs, then we become empowered to create the world and life that we want to have rather than the life we were programmed to expect. So the important question is, how the heck do we do that? Well, that's, that's really wonderful because in the last number of years, there's a whole new way of looking at psychology. Our conventional understanding of psychology is cognitive therapy. And cognitive therapy is the one that says, okay, let's go back and go back into your childhood and your infancy and all the life in between and look at all the places where things went wrong. And that person sitting on that couch in that psychologist's office is reliving every one of these experiences just like they just happened again. So you're reliving them. You're, 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 you know, you're getting through all your, that emotional angst is coming back up again and again. And in the end, you go through years of this. Let's say you spend thousands of dollars and you get to the end point and you say, yep, my life isn't good for these reasons. And I make a list. My father did this. My mother did this. These people did that. This happened to me here. I can make a whole list. And it's like, yeah, my consciousness, my conscious awareness, we just worked it out. I made a map. In my consciousness, I'm very aware of all these steps that happened. Here's the question. Just because I became consciously aware of this, did I, in fact, change the programs that I acquired during this period or not? And the answer is nope. And the reason, and here's an important reason. The subconscious mind is the equivalent of a tape player, meaning like a cassette tape, that our experiences generate these little programs like little cassette tapes. So the subconscious mind's like a giant jukebox with cassette tapes of programs, and there are buttons on it. And the environment and the, our, you know, our perception in the environment pushes the buttons. As a matter of fact, people, you know, I love this phrase because people say it. They say, oh, that guy pushed my buttons. Uh, what does that mean? It says, well, something happened, and I found myself engaged in this behavior that even shocked me because that guy pushed my buttons. Well, what was the point? The behavior that shocked me was a program. That, that to elicit that program, I have to have stimuli from the environment. So the stimuli push the button, I play the tape, and then that, that's my subconscious behavior. And why is this relevant is that if I give you a cassette tape, and you take it home, and you put it in your cassette player, and then you push the play button, and now this program is playing. Here's the big important question. Can I change that program by talking to the cassette player? Can I go up to the, to the player and say, hey, don't play that program anymore. Stop. I want something new. Play something different. You're yelling at the, at the cassette player. And the question is, did that change the program? The answer is, no, <laughs> the cassette player doesn't work that way. And there's nobody in the cassette player to say, oh, somebody's yelling at us, let's change the program. No, there's nobody in there. Why it's relevant is I can become aware of all the issues that created my tapes. I am now consciously aware, and then I say to my subconscious, okay, you know, we've been through life like this 40 years. I've just finished this complete regimen of cognitive therapy. I know all the reasons why it's bad. Now play something different. And the answer is it's a cassette player. Nobody's in there. Nobody's listening. It's just, you know, stimulus response. If I don't rewrite the tape, it's going to play over and over again. That's why I'm saying you can yell at your cassette player until you're blue in the face, and it's still going to play the same program. 
until you push the record button. And all of a sudden it says, uh, record button? Yes, there's a way to rewrite programs. And the, why this is important is it's a process to do it. It's not just like there's, like there's a cognitive entity in my subconscious that's listening to me so that my conscious is going to talk to my subconscious and they're going to have a dialogue with each other. No, your consciousness is, when you're talking to yourself, is the equivalent of talking to a tape player. And the fact is, why is that important? Because there's nobody in there, and nobody's going to listen to that. That you actually have to change something to change the tape, not just talk to it. So now the question is, okay, I've got programs. They're running my life. They do it automatically. I don't see them, and I can't talk to them. Now what? And then the answer, well, there's two things you have to follow through on in, in this case. Number one is, A, identify the beliefs in that subconscious that are misleading you. Uh, so their beliefs, not worthy, not deserving, not good enough, not smart enough, whatever these beliefs are, okay? Once you identify the belief, now you know which tape you want to change. And then to go into the system and change the tape, there are a variety of ways of doing that. Um, one way, hypnotherapy. And why does that work? And the answer is because the hypnotherapy takes you right back to that first six years of your life. It shuts down your alpha and beta, your higher levels of consciousness when you're in hypnotherapy. I, you can't get hypnotized if you're actively focused conscious. You actually have to be put into a trance. Yeah, but what's the trance? It's a low brain activity, the delta and theta level of brain activity, the one that we were in for the first six years of our lives. If we can get into that level, then what we're doing is shutting off consciousness and getting into a, what is called a hypnotic trance, which is where we were for the first six years of our lives. Now that we're back in that state again, we can reprogram just like we got the original programs subconsciously, just, just uh, download it straight. So hypnotherapy is one way of getting there. Uh, a variety of other ways include energy psychology. And there's a whole range of different types of energy psychology, all different modalities, uh, EFT, holographic repatterning, avatar, uh, body talk. Psyche is the one that is mentioned on my website, uh, a variety of them. And some of them work better for some people, and some of the modalities work better for other people. So I'm not saying there's one modality, go and do it, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so energy psychology, why is energy psychology uh, effective. Well, I can speak to, for example, the Psyche process because I'm familiar with it. And what's, why does the Psyche process work? And the answer is, is that it, there's a two-step part of the Psyche. So it, it, and there are two steps in most of them. The first step is identify what are the limiting programs that are in the subconscious. This is not easy to do. You can't do it with your conscious mind easily for this reason. The, the, the subconscious is like a library. It's got volumes and volumes and volumes of books in it. The conscious mind is like a person who walks in the library. Okay, I asked you to go into the library and tell me what's the program that you're, you're trying to find, and the answer is, my God, my conscious mind will be just like blown away. It's like, where, where do you want me to start? There's a million books in here. <laughs> conscious mind is very difficult to try and find that. Matter of fact, since much of the programming occurred before we were conscious, it would be very difficult for the conscious mind to pull it up. If, if, if I got a program when I was two years old, 
which I was downloading at that time because that's the way the brain was working, my consciousness wasn't working till around six. So now I try to ask consciousness, okay, explain me, explain what happened when I was two years old. And the thing is, well, there's no real conscious awareness of it. You weren't conscious when it happened. So that's why consciousness doesn't work very well looking for some of these things. How do I identify the, the beliefs that I have? It's an age-old thing, not age-old, actually. It's uh, about 30, 40 years old called kinesiology, muscle testing. And why should that have any effect? And here's a simple reason. The body's musculature is connected to the subconscious, not the consciousness. The subconscious runs all of the muscles of the body. The subconscious has all the data stored from previous experiences. When I'm doing muscle testing, and when I'm doing it right, and I'm going to get back to that, it's very important because muscle testing has been misused and misunderstood, so it gives results that are like uh, kind of questionable if you don't do it right. Uh, but I'll get back to that in a second. Okay. I'm doing a muscle test, and i using my conscious mind to make a statement. So I'm holding out my arm, and my conscious mind makes a statement that says, I deserve to be successful. Very positive statement. I hold out my arm. And I, ask, uh, I say, I'll make the statement and then put pressure on my arm. And so I say, I deserve to be successful. And then somebody pushes pressure on my arm, and, and my arm starts to drop. And saying, well, why, did it, well, why couldn't I hold it steady? And the answer is simple. The belief of whether I deserve things or not in my life is in my subconscious. So my conscious mind makes a positive statement, I deserve things. But my subconscious mind has a data file in there from my first six years of life that heard a number of times, you don't deserve things, Bruce. And so my positive statement comes from my conscious mind, but my subconscious mind says, that's not true, not, not according to our history. And why is this a problem? Because there's a conflict. The conscious mind says, I deserve things. The subconscious mind says, I don't deserve things. The conflict causes a disharmony in the system because it's sort of like there's an argument going on now. Where, where this is manifesting itself is the disharmony causes the muscles to lose their ability to hold strength. So when I make a statement and then I test with muscle testing and my arm cannot hold it, it says that my subconscious doesn't necessarily agree with my conscious, with what was just said. That's how we begin to identify. If I make a statement, uh, I deserve to be successful, and my subconscious has that belief in it from my childhood that, you know, my parents gave me all kinds of good things like, yeah, you're doing great. You, that, you're so good here. You should get this. And, and, you know, that's my learning at six years old. My subconscious mind says, yeah, that I deserve things. If I say in my conscious mind I deserve things and my subconscious mind says I deserve things and then I do a muscle test, in total harmony in my system, my muscles are going to be rigid and strong and then they won't, they won't give way. So muscle testing basically just says to the, is a test of the system to say, what did I just say? Is, does my subconscious believe it or not? If it believes it, my arm's going to be strong because we're in harmony. And if my subconscious has a program that says that's not true, then I'm going to be weak and my arm is going to fall, fall. So what's the point? I can test whether my beliefs in my subconscious uh, are, agree with the beliefs in my conscious. When they don't agree, then it says that that's a place where we have to rewrite a program, okay? <clears throat> Let's just go to the caveat about muscle testing because uh, people have gotten messed up and then it it's given muscle testing a bad name. Mm -hmm. And here's where people get messed up. There's usually two people involved with muscle testing. The 
one whose arm is being pressed and the other person who's pressing the arm. Well, the one whose arm is being pressed is the one we're testing their belief with. But the one who's pushing down on the arm is not supposed to be involved with the test. But here's where the problem comes from. If the one who's pushing down on the arm is involved with the outcome of the test, I'll give you an example. I'm testing you to say, do you need the supplements I'm selling? Okay? So your bo- I'm asking your body, does it need the supplements? So you hold the supplements, I'm doing a test. And the fact is, I'm the guy who's pushing down on your arm, but I also have an invested interest in the outcome of the test because, of course, I believe you need the supplements. That's why I'm selling them. So when I'm pressing down, I'm not a passive person in this process. I'm very actively involved. It turns out that if the person who's pressing on the arm is entangled with the person who's being tested or entangled with the result of the test, they control the test. And that's why the people who sell supplements are so good at selling the product because every time they do it, most of the time, the people will test very strong. Not because the person needed the, the supplement, it's because the person who's doing the testing, they believe they need the supplement. And, and that's where the, the muscle testing goes awry a bit, is mm. that there's an entanglement between two people. So that if makes a sense. spouse is trying to test uh, the other spouse about a belief system, well, you know, there's an entanglement there, so it's not a fair, clean test. A clean test is the person who's pressing should have no connection or involvement with the outcome of that test. Now, should it be a totally uh, blind or double-blind test to really be accurate? No, because double-blind doesn't mean anything in the world of consciousness. Consciousness sees through double-blind. That's, that's the interesting part. We always thought, oh, double-blind, that's a clear, work, per- perfect scientific experiment. turns out consciousness is above the double blind. It can see it. And so uh, that, that's really, the, the way of doing muscle tests is really part of the process, like in psyche processes, to really develop a way of being detached and curious. And so that you really develop a mindset when you're doing a test, not in any way to imagine what the outcome of the test is going to be. So if I'm testing you for, for a point, and I think, oh, I know she's going to test this way, my thought, and then I test you, I'm actually controlling the test. But if I'm testing you thinking, I wonder, I wonder how Nicole's going to respond to this, and I don't have any vision of what's going to happen, then the test is more accurate. So the tester cannot have any attachment to the outcome, but what about the testee? Well, the testee, the, their conscious mind can have anything they want, but you're not testing the conscious mind when you're doing the muscle test. You're testing whether the muscles hold their strength, and that's a reflection of the subconscious mind. Hmm. So the testee can have any vision that they want, because they're not, we're not testing consciousness, we're testing subconscious. Muscles are connected to the subconscious. Okay, so you identify the beliefs now, now what? Okay, now, in the psyche process, because that's the one I know more about, but it's relevantly similar in other processes as well. It's okay, now I, got a, I say, I test, I say, I deserve to be successful and my arm falls. Okay, so I say, oh, well, obviously, somewhere in my development, I acquired a program that says, uh, success is not part of my future, that I'm not worthy of success or whatever it is. So that's my program in the subconscious. I don't want that program. I want another program. So I say, I just can't talk to the subconscious. I have to get it into a record mode. Well, remember I said that in that six-year period, the child's in a state of super learning, that they can learn like three languages before six, and then it gets difficult to learn a single language after six? Mm-hmm. If I can get you back into a super learning state, 
that gives me access uh, the same way the program was written. If I can get back into that state, I can rewrite a program. So I said, well, how do I get into a super learning state? And here's what the Psyche process is involved with and other ones as well, and that is super learning is associated with synchronization between the right and the left brain hemispheres. We know that there's a right and a left hemisphere. We know that one side deals with emotion and the other side deals with logic, for example. One side deals with pieces and parts. The other side deals with whole images, the whole picture. There, there, are, different, there are different values to each side. So what it turns out is after we pass six and seven and we start to get older, we start losing the ability to have both hemispheres working at the same time. So as an older person, I'm generally in my emotional side or my logic side, but never both of them at the same time. It's, not, it's a rare case, okay? So the question is, well, how can I reprogram if I'm in dominant left hemisphere or let's say I'm in dominant right hemisphere when I need both of them? I can't reprogram if, if, if I'm trying to reprogram I'm in, and I'm in my emotional state. The program didn't affect the logic part of the program. It just affected the emotional consequence of the program. If I'm in my logic side of my brain and I try to reprogram, well, I might correct the facts, but I didn't change the emotional response to the stimuli. So what the effort is, can I get into a brain-balanced state? So in the psyche process, there is part of the process is once I identify what my program is, I want to change it. The next step is to get into a, a brain-balanced state, which involves things like NLP and Brain Gym and other, other programs where you ac exercise uh, and get both hemispheres to start to become coordinated. And when they start to become coordinated, then I write into my system, I deserve to be successful. And, and you, you do this somewhat like sitting in, a, in this whole brain state, let's call it. You sit there and you say to yourself, I deserve to be successful. And it's interesting because in your consciousness, when you say that, if you have programs in your life that say no, the moment you say that in this whole brain state, you can even feel the, like the nervous noise and energy, what's going on. You can feel like there's resistance. I'm saying I deserve to be successful, and I'm getting feedback from my programs and my experiences over life that said, oh, yeah, listen, here are a thousand different experiences that show you that that's not true. So I can hear this noise in my head when I'm saying, I deserve to be successful, and you can feel it. It's just not calm. And then you say it again after you hear this noise, and it calms down a little bit. Then you say it again, I deserve to be successful. And there's going to be less noise the second time. And then you say it again, I deserve to be successful in the whole brain balanced state. And what you're doing without knowing it is rewriting all those experiences, those perceptions that we acquired, you're rewriting them. And every time you repeat, I deserve to be successful, there's less feedback. And there's a point, and, and it's really fun because you say, uh, you tell the people, when you get into the brain balance state and you ask them, okay, just go in your mind and rewrite the statement, say it. And then when you're finished, you know, uh, open up your eyes and then we'll, we'll, we'll set this program. And, and what's interesting is open up your eyes when you're ready. Well, the people say, well, how do I know when I'm ready? And, and, and it's fun because you say, you'll know. And it's funny because people know. As soon as they can feel it, there's a point where they say, I deserve to be successful. And guess what? No resistance. The entire system is like, okay, cool. And, that, and you're waiting for the resistance. And nothing's happening. You can feel it. It's 
feels different. I deserve to be successful. And when there's no resistance to that, the whole body says, sure. And that's when you've rewritten the program. Now, is that a permanent rewrite, or does it come back? As far as we know, and, I, and, and it's interesting because, uh, I, I, again, I'm the scientist, and I'm not the how-to-fix-it guy. But then I got involved with Psyche and other programs like Body Talk and, and uh, Holographic Repatterning, which are very similar kinds of programs. They're all have, they share common uh, you know, techniques in this. Uh, uh, and uh, each one of these, that I, I found that the surprise was that when the belief was rewritten, that they, that belief is now permanently rewritten. The first, I'll give you, so I'll give you the first example. The first time I saw this, uh, for a number of years, I was giving lectures to people saying, this is how it works. And, of course, the immediate first question when I, after the lecture is over, the first question is, how do I change the belief? And I'm thinking, <laughs> after I explained how the nature of beliefs control that, you know, I, I, I feel satisfied as a scientist. This is the way life works. Of course, the audience is not satisfied because now that they say, well, that's the way it works, tell me how to change it. So usually that question comes up and then I say, oh, well, uh, you know, and I offer Buddhist mindfulness, which is another way of doing it, which is if you stay conscious all the time, then you never resort to the tape. But that's a very difficult process in the world we live in because consciousness has a tendency to wander, and therefore we can't keep our eye on the ball. So people don't like that one very much, and, and so I really didn't have much to offer. And I remember this one lecture I'm giving in Colorado. I finished, the questions came up. People were very anxious about, okay, what to do about it. I didn't give them much of an answer. Buddhist mindfulness, they didn't accept that a lot. And uh, I was sitting, going back to sit down to my seat after the presentation, and the next speaker up was Rob Williams, the guy who developed Psyche. And as I was going back to my seat, I hear Rob say, I will show you a process that Bruce is, you know, that, a way to reprogram those, the, those subconscious beliefs that Bruce talked about. So well, immediately I turned around and started to pay attention. Now, what's this guy going to do? <laughs> and so his first step, he said, uh, he asked the audience, are there any volunteers that would like to change a belief? Well, of course, half the people immediately raised their hand. Everybody wanted to change something. But I saw this one woman raise her hand and put it down and pull it up and down and up and down. And it's funny because Rob saw her as well. And her name is Pauline. And he calls, you know, he, she's in the audience. He's up at the podium. And he says, uh, well, would you tell us your name and what the problem is you'd like to change? Well, everybody looked at this woman, and she just turned beet red. Not a word came out of her mouth. Not one thing. And, and she couldn't say anything. So Rob left the podium, went down in the audience, and talked with her, you know, whispered and talked with her. And obviously what the issue was, she couldn't talk in public. That was pretty obvious now, right? <laughs> so he brings Pauline up to the front, goes through this process. It's about a 10-minute process or less. She gets to the state of uh, reprogramming. It's all done. Uh, they muscle test now because after you program, if you tested before, let's say, uh, you know, uh, let's say I, uh, I can speak in public in her case, or whatever the statement was. Before uh, they did the process, they tested her and her arm wouldn't hold up because her belief system says, no, that's not true. They go through the belief change. They stand up immediately and say, I can, you know, let's test again the statement. I can speak in public. And the arm is rock solid. So it was fun because we're looking at that, and, well, that's nice. We can see that, that our arm definitely is stronger, but that didn't, you know, the audience goes, that's really cool, but that doesn't change anything as far as we know. But here was the part that was exciting. Rob takes his arm off her shoulder after he turns her around to face the audience, takes her arm off, his arm off her shoulder, and says, Pauline, would you like to uh, explain to the audience how you feel about the process we just did? 
<laughs> and all of a sudden, Pauline starts to give this talk. She's walking up and down the podium, you know, the stage, talking and all excited and telling stories. And everybody, including myself, is sitting in this audience looking with like saucer eyes. Here's a woman. Ten minutes ago, could not even say her name. And the funniest part of the whole thing was, Rob had to ask her to sit down because he was running. She was using his lecture time up, <laughs> <laughs> and that was. A, and so he had. She had to sit down. Well, this was an annual meeting, so I had the opportunity to go back every, you know, for several years in a row, and saw this woman. And the next year, uh, a year later, she came back, and I said, "Well, how did this thing go over the year?" And she's, she had formed Toastmasters. <laughs> in her, where she lived in Florida in her community. And that was the first year. The second year she came back, she had won a, an award for public speaking at Toastmasters. <laughs> and for several years in a row, it just continued. The point was, 10-minute process, the results were immediate. They were observable right at the moment. Her, she turned into a lecturer right at that moment, and that changed. And I found this to be pretty consistent with all the other people that have since been through the same process. So... Uh, if there if there is a you know a, a, a going back, uh, it, it's not that it's not that frequent, uh, and that most of these changes appear to be very permanent in changing a person's uh, way they interact with life. Well, I'm glad we left off on a very positive, empowering note because I know some of us are thinking, "My God, what's in there now?" <laughs> well, but that's great because look, before we had this lecture. This person, let's say, you know, listener A, looked at their life out there. It's not going well. They're not happy. They're not healthy. The world is against them the way they see it. They're making all the conscious effort that they, in their mind to become successful, and, and, and they're being beaten down. Well, that's a real tough way to look at the world. Now the show is over, and what do we find out? That, that this was probably initiated from within self and the subconscious, most likely. Relevant, you can change it. Relevant? my God, then if I really start to become proactive in the process, I can recover my life. And that is the most positive thing in the world because I don't care how old you are, those beliefs can be rewritten. Whether you just learned this belief last year or you learned it 40 years ago, it takes the same time to, reach, to rewrite the belief. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with the age, like, oh, I've had that my whole life, so now I'm stuck. And the answer is no. You could go through this process and change your beliefs. Well, there we go. Thank you so much for being with us today. Or unfortunately, we're already out of time. It goes so <gasps> fast. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> it goes so fast when you're here. Uh, hour just goes zip. So wow. I, I do hope you'll come back and join us again. I, I would love to. I hope that some people out there uh, the, listen to this stuff and begin to become uh, interested in self-empowerment and get back to you when they, they start to change their lives because this is the kind of thing that will help others do it as well. Well, self-empowerment is our trip, so I'm sure you've had a, a very open audience listening to you right now. And actually, we're going to be having Brad Yates back on in a couple of weeks on that note, doing more EFT with us. So we're Yes, that's one of the ways as well. So mm-hmm. that's a, that is, that uh, EFT is a, a way of uh, changing these beliefs. Yes, a lot of interesting techniques that are out there now, very powerful stuff. And I uh, look forward to further exploration. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Nicole. Thank you. DrBruceLipton.com. That's where you go. And I will see you next week with more news for your
Hey, this is Dave Morehouse, and you're listening to News for the Soul. Good evening, Vancouver. Hello to you, wherever you're listening to us from around the world. This is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. And boy, you wouldn't believe where I'm standing right now. We're on a ghost hunt at Jake's Crossing Pub. Don't go away. We're about to go in to Jake's Crossing, the haunted pub. Back in one minute with more news for your soul. If you've just tuned in, we're here on a live ghost-busting expedition. We're here at Jake's Crossing Pub, well-known for its paranormal, quote-unquote, haunting activity, and we're about to go in to the bowels of the basement, as it were, live, and you're here for the ride with us for the next two hours on CFUN. Metaphysically speaking, the energy here is already starting to shift. Somebody knows we're here, and the welcoming committee has been brought out. We're absolutely starting to receive some feedback with our equipment. What we're getting right now is we seem to be getting some modulation on the camera uh, audio line, and uh, it's right by the door. And the door of this building, uh, the structure is 1913, so there's some wiring, but everything else aside, it is a truly an anomaly, um, so we don't know what's going to happen inside. Okay, we're going in. Okay, here we are. Cross your fingers, folks. Many prayers for us. We're stepping into the bowels itself. Now, are you going to tell me when you start sensing something? Okay, Nicole, I'm starting to sense something. Literally, we are being visited here. Um, nobody's showing up, per se, right in front of my eyes, but there is metaphysical energy taking place here. The metaphysical aura of a human being is about 30 feet. As we step into this building, keep in mind, my auric field is about 30 feet around us and tapping into things. There is, oh, there's already some bumping taking place here. I'm sticking right with you. Can you feel that? There is an absolute shift in the vibration of the energies here. Yeah. Spirits throw, show up in four different manners. They will show up as spheres. They will show up as wisps of energy, if you like. Or they will show up as funnels. And in a perfect world, we get full manifestation. Ah, oh, look at this. Just... We're being led to a door that very clearly on the outside says, keep out. There is an energy absolutely leading us in this direction. And it is so locked, there is no way we're getting into that door. We're going to have to speak to somebody about getting this door open because there's a very distinct, very strong emanation of energy coming from outside there. You have to imagine that that wave of energy we just felt coming over top of us took out our phones, took out... Both at the same time. Both at the same time. That was wild. That was... And obviously, I mean, I felt it. I don't know exactly what your experience was. We we got 10 feet in here. I looked over and saw that door. Absolutely. And it was like... Yes. I am actually seeing somebody here. It's a sphere floating in the air about uh, seven to eight feet in front of us. This is fantastic. This is great paranormal activity. This is what it's all about. It looks dark over there, doesn't it? It sure does look dark over there. Yeah, this idea was this live ghost-busting adventure. I I think you dragged me into this, Nicole. I think this was you. We are definitely in a deep, dark depth. Yeah. Oh, what is this? Oh, this is fantastic. Okay, this is really dark, and we found some interesting... uh... Oh, my goodness. 
And what it showed was that there were these bell-shaped objects that were uh, all around our group. One in particular, very, well, one that was probably the size of a, a very large pumpkin that was probably three to four feet right above my head. The, the colors were incredible. It was just brilliant. It came right in, right over the group. started off on a very spiritual journey after a near-death experience. That's what blew me wide open. And on the spiritual journey I was on, about halfway through it, it seems like, I started bumping into these extremely advanced, very spiritual and technologically advanced ETs. The coyotes went crazy here when this first one, you can hear them right there. They go off when, they, when the ships come in, the coyotes go nuts and they all start screaming. Yeah. I heard something, yeah, that's coyotes? Yeah, that's it, that's, that's the coyotes, they're going off. Wow, I can hear that. <laughs> can you hear them? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. They feel them. Just incredible. What they usually do is they come over the group first and they scan the group and see where the group is at in consciousness and then they decide, you know, they actually scan the whole area to see, you know, what kind of energies are afoot and people are afoot in the area, and then they decide how low they're going to come. It was interesting to note that when you said that that was happening, I actually sent something to look at you, and the phone had actually fuzzed out and beeped right at the same time, so that was kind of interesting. So we've been scanned. That's what's happened so far. What, what are the chances, James, of actually seeing something in this hour, do you think? Oh, some, got What's happening? Can you see what? Okay, we've got flashes. Work. They're coming in. Okay, right over where? Flashing going on. They've okay. got some, some major flashes, I think, on the mountain and then over a tree. Some things starting to happen. Okay, so we've got action just at the end of the show. <laughs> That's just going to piss everybody off. <laughs> now they're going to have to wait at least two days to find out what happened. But we're going to stay here and we're going to stay on top of this. Attention soul searchers. Tune in to the show you've all been waiting for. News for the soul. From the uplifting to the unexplained. With your guides on life's journey, Daniel Brinkley and Nicole Whitney. Discover more at www.newsforthesoul.com.
talking about that stuff late at night for some reason. But here we are. We're talking about it now. So what we've got here today is an interesting, in-the-moment exploration of something paranormal and an interesting application of reverse speech therapy. We've got John here, John Kelly from YourInnerVoice.com, full hour here with us to explore live on the air, uh, something that we've been exploring lately, and uh, I was excited about doing this because it's such a neat tool to use that we've done this with John over the years with different things, and the stuff that comes out of the work and the research with reverse speech is so interesting, really, at the very, very, very least, gives you a big pause to wonder. So let's bring him on, do a brief explanation for the newbies in the reverse speech zone. Find out about that. Find out about what we're doing today and jump on in. John Kelly, welcome back to News for the Soul. Hey, Nicole, it's great to be with you again. It's always a party. <laughs> How are you? Very well, you know, just uh, getting adjusted to the autumn weather. It's uh, sort of a foggy, rainy day here today in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, missing summer, but... Uh, you know, we're well, we're well on our way into the uh, Thanksgiving Christmas season. Yes, aren't we, though? It's just barreling ahead, full tilt. Not that we had much of a summer, so there wasn't much to miss this year. But, yeah, liquid sunshine. So tell me what's new with you as far as reverse speech and your work. And it's been a while since we've chatted. Well, just, uh, you know, been keeping uh, in touch with uh, headline news and continuing to work with individual clients, uh, continuing to, uh, you know, break boundaries of, of, of the possible in terms of discovering unconscious processes by listening to the voice in reverse. Uh, when we listen to people's speech played backwards, we can hear their unconscious thoughts and feelings, things that they may not feel comfortable disclosing consciously, but the unconscious mind wants to communicate and, and does so in many different ways, including messages that are encoded in a mirror language that can be detected when we play speech recordings backwards. You know, when people talk, they sometimes move their hands in an animated way. Uh, we call that body language, but we know that that body language isn't under conscious control. The, we don't talk and tell our hands uh, move the right hand, move the left hand. It's the unconscious mind sending those signals to the muscles, and the unconscious mind also sends muscles or signals to the speech organs, which are muscular, and uh, tells them to, to make extra movements that uh, communicate more than what the conscious mind may hear. So when I'm talking to you today, I'm also communicating extra messages. If you were to, to play my speech recording in reverse, you might hear something from my unconscious, maybe some feelings or something about a dream that I had or maybe some hopes and wishes for my future that I, I have yet to express consciously, but my unconscious already knows and is talking about them now. And so if we want to have deeper insight into issues or perhaps take a look over the horizon at upcoming events uh, that may be unknown presently, the unconscious can help us to fulfill that, and this technique of reversing speech is uh, an excellent gateway into that unconscious process to, 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 to gather the wisdom of the unconscious mind and to, to bring it forward in a way that's uh, presented in our own speaking voice in, in plain language. Um, the messages can be quite unambiguous. They can talk very directly, again, about things that the conscious mind may feel not uh, so comfortable being direct about. The unconscious is able to communicate in a very direct way describing uh, with great accuracy place names and people's names, uh, descriptions of, of past events, sometimes events up to 60 years in the past oh, can be yeah. disclosed through these kinds of messages. So a, a very useful tool, uh, very uh, powerful for individual therapies, for discovering and exploring issues that uh, are impenetrable perhaps through conventional means. 
the unconscious can help us with these reverse messages. So in really, really simplistic terms, the way I've always described it to people, correct me if I'm wrong, you're listening to what you're consciously saying in forward motion, and then what you're really saying comes out in the backward speech. Well, it's, it's like looking in a mirror, and we're mirroring the signal, the speech signal, the audio signal. We're, we're mirroring it, and when we look at the mirror of the signal, you know, we see the true identity. The, the face in the mirror appears. You know, when we look at the signal in the mirror, we see the face of the unconscious mind, the true face. So we all look in the mirror in the morning. This is just a, a, a an expression of that mirroring with sound, the sound of the voice. Uh, you know, it's not. It, it doesn't undermine or uh, discredit the conscious communications. It just simply opens more avenues and doorways than may be possible through conscious talk. So it's not a way of necessarily discrediting people and what they say, but rather a way of expanding our awareness of what it is that people are saying and mm-hmm. getting a deeper, a deeper perception of that, that speech. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> and uh, But, it, you know, it's just a, such an interesting tool. Whenever we've delved into something using this as an extra tool to explore, the most interesting things have come up. So um, why don't we talk about that as far as, you know, I don't want to get into the whole nitty-gritty debate about, you know, how it's, what's affecting it and how it's, is it real, blah, blah, blah. People can revisit the News for This Whole archive and hear hours of discussion about those in the earlier shows, but I want to kind of demonstrate how this can be used as a therapeutic tool and an exploration tool. So you've been doing a lot of that work over the recent years, right? Yeah, since 1997, I, I've run a clinical practice with an international clientele. So I have a, a lot of hours logged in session, um, working with people mostly at you know, remote locations, thousands of miles apart. The only uh, the only input I have is over the telephone line, and I'm able to make deductions and analyses based on those voice signals to communicate uh, what the client's state is, is their unconscious material. People identify very strongly with material in these messages and they're able to uh, to validate the information is factual. So it's been a very interesting journey, a very powerful journey and empowering for me, of course, when, whenever we see people accessing and breaking through and uh, re-energizing, you know, it tells us that the things we find difficult in our own lives, it may be possible to break through those things as well. Uh, if we looked at a session um, fr- from a, about 10 years ago, this is, uh, this is a ways back, this is a live session I did with an individual talking to me telling a story about uh, when they were very young and how they were crossing the street with their younger brother and uh, the young boy uh, broke free and and ran and was struck by a car and lost his life. Uh, This is the the story forwards. How did that impact on your image of yourself as someone who was responsible who could take care of other people? Um, To be trusted with responsibility. Well... I don't, I don't know how to verbalize it. Um, so even then the client says they have no way of giving conscious expression to their feelings. They feel stuck or inhibited uh, communicating consciously. But the unconscious mind doesn't suffer from the same issues. So we can hear unconsciously a very clear message. I hear the words, better hang on to him. I could really hear it on the third one when it broke it down. You know, it's amazing how fast you find those and how tuned in. You, I mean, it's incredible. 
Well, it's something that's happening in real time, and, it, and this process is, is practical because it doesn't take you know thousands of hours to find a message. The messages are, are tangible, and they, they're ready to be identified. It just takes some patient monitoring, you know, uh, just like when a doctor uh, has a lab produce an X-ray, then the X-ray is studied to, to produce a diagnosis. And, the, the, you know, the study of the X-ray may take a little bit of time, but certainly uh, a lot of good diagnoses came through studying those X-rays. And the speech signal also has valuable data about our inner condition, our, our emotional health. It can describe many things, including uh, these unconscious feelings in, in this client's case about how she felt the sense of attachment, not only to holding her brother's hand, but the uh, retaining that memory and that painful memory of the tragic loss, describing uh, the words better hang on, mm. hanging on, you know, we're all in attachment to uh, unconscious issues, and when we release those attachments, we become empowered to, uh, to, to face new challenges. So uh, an example there of somebody who had difficulty expressing themselves forwards, but in reverse, there was no difficulty at all. They were, the inhibitions were removed, and the unconscious voice spoke. Uh, here's another interesting message uh, from somebody. I think she was talking about dealing with depression and uh, feeling stuck, uh, dealing with a business that had not uh, not succeeded but wanted to move forward in her life. But this is the forwards portion. I'm admitting that um, something was a failure and that you lost either money or time or effort and energy. So, th- you know, being focused on not succeeding. But the unconscious uh, communicates a different message. I can hear the words, hurry, life is only a lesson. Wow. See, I can really hear it clear on the second and third one. When it gets broken down, it comes out. But I've all, I know I've always asked that question about, you know, how subjective is it to knowing ahead of time and all of that. But... We won't go there today. Well, let's just stay on, on focus as far as how to use this as a tool. And like I said, people can go to those other shows. And you're you're, you're identifying the messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm playing th- at three different speeds. Uh, mm-hmm. You're, 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 you're make, doing speech recognition, and uh, all of us with, who are gifted with hearing uh, perform speech recognition all day. It's, it's, it's common practice. So with your, on your own recognition, if you identify the message, it's just like our talk t- right now. Uh, I recognize you're speaking to me in English. I understand what you're saying. It's not confusing. Uh-huh. <clears throat> now, the real question is, and I guess the most important in context of what we're doing today, is how did they change? How did things change for the, uh, you know, once they heard that, mm-hmm. once they identified that in their subconscious, how did they change? Well, I, I think, you know, uh, you would agree that, or I hope you will agree that sound can be very powerful and evocative uh for individuals when we hear special sounds they can uh, bring up powerful feelings that we may have, that may even surprise us and so uh, sounds relax the nerves and uh, unconscious feelings uh, can come up uh, we can we can go into cathartic states meaning we can release a great amount of emotional energy people can begin to cry for example uh, just due to the induction uh, derived from from hearing these special sounds so the sounds awaken uh, memories and feelings from within us and provide gateways as well. The, uh, the, descri- the information described in the messages can be used as the basis of uh, visualizations and exercising, exercises exploring inner feelings. And through those processes, people state that, uh, that they uh, experience deep behavioral changes in a very short period of time. 
they, they find that the, the subjects that were inhibiting them uh, no longer burden them, and that that can be, you know, demonstrated, you know, within 24 to 72 hours after after one session. People say that they find themselves in uh, social situations, let's say in the workplace, where they may have felt inhibited in the past. They found spontaneously that they had the strength to stand up and state their mind where they never would have before. It was as if their personality had changed at a very fundamental level. And so the relationship between sound and personality and behavior is uh, is discussed in this in this uh, topic in this exploration of backwards messages. Uh, it, it brings up this concept: the interrelationship between what we hear, how we behave, what we think, and what we feel are tied together. Uh, you know, people who experience uh, music and go to live concerts. I mean, it's it's natural uh, for people to f to feel happy feelings when they when they hear some kind of favorite music that they may have not been feeling before. Music has the power to evoke feeling or to awaken feeling within us. Uh, sound has the power to awaken great potential within us. Uh, in the therapeutic model, the power to awaken healing and creative processes and transformational processes, profound processes that can be. Uh, demonstrated through, through changes in behavior, through reporting from the people around us about, about uh, changes in our personalities, and through you know, our, own, our own eyewitness uh, experience when we see ourselves behaving differently, speaking differently, feeling differently. We know that something has changed, and uh, we could say that the sessions definitely are, are a causal factor in that, that participating in the sessions awakens the power of change within individuals, and those changes are tangible and meaningful in a very direct way. Well, it's definitely intriguing what's been going on. And uh, I, I guess speaking music, perfect segue to begin our exploration today. Now, what I wanted to talk to John about, this is live in the moment stuff. I talked to John last night, told him a little bit about what was going on, which I'll, I'll describe momentarily. We recorded that, and he went to town and, and just got down to the business of finding my secret backwards messages in everything that was said last night for the purpose of unveiling live on the air today. <laughs> it's like one of those dreams where you're, you know, <laughs> forgetting articles of clothing in public or something, but here we are. We're just going to... You're just feeling <laughs> naked? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying that in forward ways, so God only knows what I'm saying backwards right now, but, <laughs> you know, putting myself out there as an example to explore, and I thought, well, what a great way to demonstrate the work we've done with this. So basically, I've had another odd occurrence happening in my life since September and wanted to explore that in a different ways. Um, one moment, I'm losing my voice. Okay. Like a drink of water. <laughs> I got my uh, three extra large Tim Hortons in front of me, so hopefully that'll carry me through. <laughs> so basically, here's the nutshell version for those that are not familiar yet. September 5th-ish, we had a three pianos suddenly show up and get dropped off at the house and I thought hey cool you know it'd be great for my kids and they can start plunking around on the piano and uh, you know developing some new gifts and skills and exploring creativity so there's the piano sitting there all of a sudden within well about a week uh, I started plunking around on it you know while the kids are at school and discovered I had well, not only just been able to play the piano in various ways, but read music in both clefs and and really just full-on dive into the piano. And, and the odd thing about it was it seemed like remembering the piano. It was like a powerful personal odyssey into, you know, 
more unexplained things for me personally. So that's why I chose to share it as a, as a fun way of, uh, you know, because I can't be the only one that is having that experience or an experience of that type out there. And there's more people out there that have had this. And I started wondering, firstly, well, and maybe it's just that we just don't try. We just go, we assume, you know, from the mind's perspective that we don't know how to do something. And so we come from that place of being a person who doesn't know how to do something because obviously we haven't had lessons, and we don't try. So that was one possibility. But then other things ensued. So I started wondering if it was maybe more. So we have had Kerry O'Connor on, all this kind of stuff is in the past archives of News for the Soul. We've explored this in a a few ways. Uh, Physicist Tom Campbell, our favorite physicist and author who has non-physical friends. (laughs) And now Reverse Speech with John Kelly today. So as I said, we recorded last night. I guess what I'll do at this point, I'll just play a short clip. Actually, what I did, John, after I talked to you last night was record a quick montage of um, what I've been playing including the one that I learnt uh, an hour before I phoned you, <laughs> which is the song that you hear first in the montage. I'll just play that now so they get an idea of what the heck I'm talking about. And then we'll be right back. It's going to be about a two-minute clip that I'm just going to play right over the line here, Rebecca, in case you're panicking looking for the file to play. <laughs> okay, so stand by. And, yeah, just under three minutes. Here we go. This is a couple of clips that you're going to hear. I've been playing the piano all of two months now, just about anyway, and some of these I've just learnt today. Here we go.
Well, that gives you an idea of what we're talking about here. Sounds <laughs> uh, great. Ah, a little musical interlude on News for the Soul. So, all right. So that's uh, two months of plunking around on a piano obsessively. And uh, you have a, you have a, a very nice touch with the keyboard, I think. Oh well, thank you, John. <laughs> so I'm interested to see what you uncovered. You said you had about seven clips. Yeah, I, I listened to our interview, our recording. You know, I, I rec- our recording went for about a dozen minutes, which is average when I'm in a, a typical therapy session. I'll record someone speaking, telling their story for about ten minutes, and then work with that audio to derive these backwards messages. And I simply reversed the audio, uh, slowed it down. And then uh, listened intently to see if I could I could identify any speech patterns that were clear, and I think I found some interesting messages. Nicole, I'll ask you if you've got a pen and paper in front of you, just so you can take notes as we go. I will in about okay a sticky note and a crayon. How about that? <laughs> okay, now I got a pen. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Now I, I, what I'm going to do is give give the listeners some context, uh, which we'll, but we'll hear you speaking a little slowed down, just in brief clips, just so we can identify where the messages are, are uh, found. And then I'll play the messages, and we'll talk a little bit about them as we go. So our first message from our, our recording, here, here it is. Checking it out and exploring it through other facets of paranormal exploration. So there you're talking about how you've been exploring this new musical and, and I wasn't talking that slow at the time. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> These are just uh, my slowed down audios, so you can hear that I am. Yes, I am slowing the audio down. It, hel- it helps me to listen uh, more intently. Um, now, I, so I played the, uh, the the audio that audio backwards, and what I heard was the words, "I fear the worst thing." I fear the worst Holy thing. Holy crap! So I'm going to play that for you now. I fear the worst thing. I. I can, and I, I have to say I was not expecting a chilling message for, right off the bat, but <laughs> I always get the unexpected with you, so <laughs> I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised. All right, uh, so so maybe what we can do is play the, the assortment of messages first, and then we can go back and review them together, the highlights and the, you know whatever was really evocative for you. So I'm going to go ahead now with our next message, and uh, again, this is the context. It's slowed down, but this is Nicole. Don't come through other ways, come through, seem to come through for the reverse speech process, you know? Okay, so uh, hoping to find other information that wasn't found in other methods. And this message, I heard the words, he interferes, makes me sore. Oh, my God. (laughs) He interferes, makes me sore. Interesting. Okay. So, in some way, these relate to the the question at hand. You feel? Well, they're happening uh, concurrently. At the same time, you discuss the you know your pianistic um, discoveries. These other subcurrents are are communicated at the same time, and it, there's related themes, what I'm what I'm wondering and perhaps hoping is that the themes of the messages will relate to some of the feelings this whole experience has brought up for you. Hmm. As you described it, you said this was a very powerful feeling process. You felt like you were tapping into feelings, it was unusual, it was rare. Remembering. It was it was like remembering. Mhm. 
so uh, I'm hoping that maybe that some of the themes of the messages as we explore them will, will help us to get you know deeper, uh, clearer access to those memories and understanding of some of those memories. Okay. okay. Um, moving forward, <coughs> um, the next the next uh, context here was was this clip. Couple different theories kind of came to surface really fast. Like you know maybe we. You're talking there about hidden potentials and how we might not always access them, and this musical expression was just a hidden potential that you always had. Hmm. And um, an interesting message in reverse. I heard the words, if you lose the verse, makes an act. If you lose the verse, makes an act. Thing that it feels really good. 
I'm bracing myself. I'm ready. <laughs> and this one I heard the words, you lose life that mystery. You lose life that mystery. You lose life that mystery. Okay. <laughs> what does this remind me of? This reminds me of that little midget in Twin Peaks. Did you ever see that show? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've heard I've heard echoes of this. I, I never watched that. Ah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so it's all about death. And then fi- finally, the, uh, the the last set of material here was uh, this context. It definitely feels like like remembering. As you said, it feels like you're remembering something, and the unconscious message. I heard the words. You remember guilt. <laughs> yes, I feel offended. <laughs> uh, okay. You remember guilt. Yes, I feel offended. You remember guilt. Yes, I feel offended. You remember guilt. Yes, I feel offended. All right. So that's my <laughs> set of messages uh, from our recording together. So Nicole, uh, as we've uh, listened, we've listened to these on a first run. Our first exposure to this material—is there anything particularly that leapt off the page that really was evocative for you? Well, John, <laughs> once I got over the shock and surprise of yet again completely unexpected things coming up through the reverse speech session, uh, several of them do, and. <clears throat> I should just point out, too, if you've just tuned in, people will be going, what the hell? <laughs> this is a practical application example of one of the uses for reverse speech therapy, which John Kelly is here doing with me, live on the air, and we're exploring a paranormal phenomenon where I uh, manifested a free piano about just under two months ago and apparently can play it. So it was feeling like remembering, like past life-related, like just something powerful and personal, a little odyssey you've been going on, so I thought, well, let's explore it live on the air and see what comes up, and holy crap, look what came up. <laughs> and the first thing that comes up for me, John, is like, wow, okay, we've uncovered a first layer of I don't know what, and, um, you know, do you do, like, second layer? Do you go in with these, talk about it more, tape more, then find more reverse messages? We can do that, but typically we uh, will use these as a premise for discussion. We'll talk about what was evocative in our in our listening session when we were listening. Did we feel any feelings came up? Did we feel any connection to the to the messages and the sound of the messages? Uh, and from there, uh, that that can lead us into explorations in visualization because, of course, the uh, some of the message content is highly visual. There's symbols and icons in the messages that can be used to, uh, to to dig deeper and from there as well we can also you know use our sense of inner feeling to explore so we're 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 using all the senses to uh to, to get the mind to uh to, to alert us to you know what what the significance of the messages is and what what's the meaning for us in in today's session so i was asking you before which of the messages were evocative for you in different ways were there messages that really struck you struck a nerve so to speak Okay, let's see. I'm <laughs> just reading through my lovely little sticky note notes here. Um, well, the the first one that we got the, about the um, losing the verse, making an act, that was intriguing, being that it was related 
seemingly to content in a sense, you know, as far as performing or whatever. But the one that really started, well, they all kind of jump out at me, to be honest with you, because we talked about, I mean, we didn't focus on it that much in our talk last night, but it does feel past life related. And the one that first kind of made the little hairs on my neck go up was an accident like a dead mummy. That, you know, when you get over kind of the ugh of it, <laughs> seems quite intriguing um, if, it's, as you say, it's past life related. And, and then, of course, it's going to be talking about the past death related as well. I guess you can't discuss one without the other. That's what makes it a past life. <laughs> it's not the present one. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I had told you privately, briefly, without giving you any details, because I haven't gone public with any of the details of this. But one of the re- reasons this whole earlier, before the piano incident came up, the personal exploration for me was because I had a very powerful, um, what seemed like a remembrance of my last life, and it was. It wasn't like happy, fluffy bliss, you know, like you think some of these things are going to be. It was quite disconcerting and upsetting and distracting. What, what, what was the upsetting part of it? It was like, uh, because it wasn't that long ago, I could revisit information around that remembrance and still feel as uncomfortable as I did about it last time. <laughs> and there was there was problems around the death thing and you know, whether it was an accident or not and such. Yeah, yeah. So accidental death Hmm. is a meaningful theme for you in your exploring uh, past lives. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that uh, definitely was, it came up over a year ago in my personal research as to what the hell am I remembering here. And um, in, in that exploration, that came up early on, almost right away. And so it came up in our messages, the theme of accidental death, an accident like a dead mummy. Uh, So uh, we're connecting with that theme of accidental death. And when we think about that theme about accidental death, I mean, what does it evoke for you? What what comes up? (sighs) I don't know. You know, it's always so shocking what comes up when you do the reverse speech exploration. I'm just kind of a little bit overwhelmed by everything that came up right now. <laughs> That's okay. So, so, uh, so if we go back, we've, so what we've done right now is we've validated some of the information is, is parallel with, with your own discovery. You can say, yes, this is a, I've, I'm seeing a theme in the messages that I've seen in other processes, and uh, I, I, we're tapping into something that's, that feels like it's resonating, it's true for me. What, what its significance is long term, we don't know yet, but there's something true that's happening now. Something authentic is happening. We've, we've made a discovery that's meaningful. If I asked you for other, you know, goosebump-raising messages from our session today, was there, are there any others? Um, I don't know. They all, on some level, got me. <laughs> Let's see. I think that the I feared the worst thing was a bit overly chilling. Um, yes. And really gets into that real deep shadow level, you know, mm-hmm. core, so the shadow being kind of stuff. I think it's interesting because, you know, from my my perspective, I mean, this discovery of you, you you know having more musical talent on the piano was was a really uh, happy and positive uh, and uplifting thing because you know people will enjoy listening to you play. But yeah. The, the, this, is, this message seems so ironic because it's, it's contrasting. It's saying it somehow is 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 associating this very positive thing with some 
negative kind of outcome, you know, as if... Well, that's that's always what's so shocking about what comes truly out of your subconscious when you do this work, you know, which is why it's interesting doing this in a live demonstration. I mean, this is all real. It's not a show like la, 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 you know, and then you'll say, and then I'll say, and we'll plan it out. This is live in the moment. We don't know what the hell is going to come up, and it's an honest exploration into really wanting to know the truth about what's going on when paranormal things happen. And... I mean, that that was always the kind of shocker doing this work with you in any context is like, I, you know, I sat down today expecting cute, fluffy messages about, you know, music and performing and, um, you know, very much on the positive zone, right? And we're getting fear, death, mummies, skulls, <laughs> guilt. I mean, <laughs> all these other things coming up. Well, so, these are very these are very primal though they are uh you know in terms of psychology uh they're 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 extremely basic uh they we're accessing very fundamental themes uh you know fear is a primal instinctive feeling uh death uh, and the confrontation of death uh you know through through an icon like a skull is also uh you know very primal and powerful um so so it's taking us to a very you know basic level we're reducing things down from you know, from the uh, from the elaborate to the simple, we're simplifying uh, this exploration in in, in uh, us- using you know the symbol language of the unconscious. So, so uh, you know, if, if we thought if I if I read if I read the uh, list of messages down, you know, just doing doing a simple analysis from the from the beginning to the end, we we, we had fearing the worst, like fear, you know, as if you know, does it suggest that you know uh, fear of death or some other you know negative outcome? What is you know what is the worst? I mean that's quite subjective. It could be anything, but we had the theme of death. So is it fear of death? Is that what it describes? The second line I heard he interferes makes me sore as if there was a feeling. I know one of the discussion points you raised in our interview was that when it's when you let when you released your need to control that the music came through better. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. As soon as I start thinking, it stops. Nice stumble. And so this message here, it talks about somebody who interferes. It talks about a man, a, a, a boy, or a boy. He, it says he interferes, as if uh, you had some, you had some time had been with around somebody who was very controlling, and that and that was inhibiting for you, uh, uh, some male personality. And so there's a relationship for you between um, uh, remembering to relax and remembering a time when somebody else tried to impose their will on you. Mm-hmm. And, that, and how that may it may have inhibited some elements of your creative flow, your ability for self-expression. Um, and is that you know is that the worst thing? Is that is that like a is that like death when we feel that we're in a relationship with somebody who's too controlling and is smothering us? Is that is that is that you know when when our self-expression isn't isn't possible? Is that is that like dying emotionally? Yeah, well, it's, it's a different form of it. It's all different forms of it, indeed. Ever been? Have you ever been in a relationship? With somebody who was like that, who who's yep, who's mm-hmm. need, need to I, I grew up in a situation like that. You felt smothered. Oh, not felt smothered. Was completely uh, disempowered. Okay, so 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 what I'm communicating to you today about about your piano performance and your ability to to release control is that you remember a time when you didn't have you didn't have a choice. And in a way, you know, the freedom of, of having the piano now is, is the free. It, it's representing, or it's symbolic of your freedom to choose, you know, how, when, and how to express yourself in as many ways as you want. Even on the piano, you can express yourself without, uh, without somebody, uh, you know, trying to inhibit you. 
from doing that. Well, you know what? That really resonates just even on that level because I know that I had asked when I was young for piano lessons, and I went. So in some ways, this is like the fulfillment of a childhood wish. Yeah, yeah, or just a, a, a purpose that was unfulfilled. But and, and you discovered that you had it all inside of you. You didn't even need lessons once you got the piano. Yeah, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> you always had it within you. It's, isn't that something? Okay, um, the next message. Uh, Actually, John, you... hang on one second. You know, I just realized we haven't done a break. Let's get a quick break out of the way. Yep. And I want to ask you a favor, too, um, for the newbies, because I, I always love revisiting this one clip. It's the one clip where where we, we first talked, you and I, did some clips on the air, and uh, it was the one moment where I really thought, wow, there's really, really something to this exploration. Do you, Do you have that clip loaded? I don't. I was just going to ask if you had it handy, if you can find it during the break. If not, no sweat. We'll just direct them to the highlights clip on News for the Soul. I think uh, we better rely on what's on the site because I, I didn't have that prepped. It's in my archive somewhere, but I'd have to dig. Okay. I'll just tell everybody it's it's in the highlights clip when you go to newsforthesoul.com and look for the highlights clip on the main website page. And it's it's clip of talking with John Kelly. And there's baby babble in the background, you know, gabba, 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 baby talk. And then when in reverse speech, well, just go check it out. <laughs> That's where I went, ha, oh, we're going to oh, talk to Don and look at this I, more. I, I'm going to load this. I'll have this ready when we come back. Ooh, you found it. Awesome. Okay. I, I know this one. Now. Yay. Okay. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with John Kelly, reverse speech, in the moment, live exploration on News for the Soul. I'm Nicole Whitney, and don't go away. We'll be right back. And if you miss any of the show, newsforthesoul.com later. Be right back. And we're back. I'm Nicole Whitney. It's News for the Soul time, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. And uh, for those of you that are new to the show, you're probably getting the gist of that now. <laughs> this is where we go, uh, just diving off the end and seeing what we find. And we're exploring today with John Kelly, reverse speech therapist, yourinnervoice.com. And he's one of the people I go to when I'm doing work in paranormal areas, researching, wanting answers, and, and it's such an interesting and provocative tool to add to the paranormal toolbox, reverse speech therapy and exploration, and boy, are we getting stuff today. Uh, but before we go back to that, John, did you find the clip? Yeah, this this clip, I, when you reminded me of, of the storyline that went with it, this is a uh, mother and her, uh, her infant uh, child, and... Uh, recorded over the telephone and you can hear the baby babbling in the background so let's let's listen to the baby babble that's the clip isn't it nicole that's the one <laughs> okay so so the baby babble the baby's not formulating uh, uh intelligible language that we can hear the unconscious mind of the baby is communicating in a way that we can understand. I can hear backwards. I hear the words, I spank him. <laughs> that one gets me every time. <laughs> the ramifications of that, you know, uh, are huge. Like mother, I mean, it's, it, you recognize, I mean, that's the voc that kind of vocabulary. Uh, and, and And the fact that your subconscious mind is already speaking before your conscious mind isn't? I mean, just the, the ramifications alone are just so mind-boggling on that clip. But it was when I first heard that clip, I went, okay, we need to look at this reverse speech thing in depthly <laughs> because that is just staggering. Mm -hmm. 
and it's so clear. Yeah, the baby's voice is very clear. Uh, it sounds like a small person saying the words, I spank him. Uh, it's, 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 it's very eye-opening. And, uh, and it's said the way they would say it at their age. Not, you spanked Robert, ouch. You know, it's like, I spank him. It's, it's said the way they would speak if they had learned to speak in forward ways. As you said, the, as you said, the choice of words and the, the formation of the sentence is very simple and straightforward and uninhibited. Um, and it talks about a subject meaningful to small children. Yep, in the way that they would. And it's, it's like being a window into that child's world and, and mind. And it's just, I mean, the ramifications, like I said, of that one clip were just mind-boggling. And that's when I knew, oh, we need to get John on and explore this in practical ways, which we're doing today. And the hour's going by way too fast. I haven't even asked you about that video yet. And for those tuning in, we're exploring... Uh, paranormal phenomenon. I got a piano less than two months ago. Can apparently play it. Feels like remembering to play it. Not uh, what well, I don't know. I, I'm so hard to explain. Um, it just feels weird and uh, cool. And I wanted to explore it. It felt past lifeish, and uh, that's definitely well past deathish is what we've <laughs> what we've got coming up in the backwards clips today. And you know what? I really do want to explore this and do another taping with you, John. Would you come back and do another deeper session on this? Yeah, I, I really think that there's interesting material. I think it's you, you've verified some of the information, and, and you've been telling me today that uh, this is bringing up more feelings for you. So I think this is really a, a worthwhile pursuit. We should go down this path a little bit further and find out what more there is to discover. Mm-hmm. I think so, because uh, I'm thinking, too, I'll, I'll discuss with you. Like I didn't want to go public with the, with the past life remembrance that I had. I just think it would be too distracting from the real issue and, you know, it would just take everything in another direction and I don't want to do that on the air. I want to stick with the issue of exploring what this all means for us collectively, you know, as humanity and what's real or what's not, you know, about the nature of ourselves and this whole death life thing. Um, so, but I'm thinking privately I'll discuss that with you and we'll just see if there's a connection here. I guess I shouldn't really be surprised that there would be. And uh, But before we get to the top of the hour, I know it's like just barreling up here, but we haven't got to the infrared video. Well, well while you and I were recording, I, uh, I, t- I also had a, a camera set up to record in infrared, and so that's, uh, for most of us, that's non-visible light. <coughs> and I, I just shot the cityscape at, at, at nighttime while we were recording. And what I found was interesting is that there appeared to be uh, light phenomena in the video that were coincident with some of the spoken statements. For example, when you talked about the looks on your children's faces, it seemed to me that there was some activity that the infrared camera recorded uh, that was that was quite intriguing. It, it, it appeared that there were orbs or balls of, of luminous material moving in front of the camera. Uh, probably the most profound light uh, occurred when you talked about letting go and letting your hands do the work letting your mind wow. the rest. And it seems to me that was the brightest light of all of them. So is it is it the case that, you know, these these energized topics uh, produce visual signatures that can be detected by infrared cameras? I, I have a quite a few years of uh, photography um, in my catalog where I've been making these kinds of recordings in quite high resolution, and I find that these lights uh, can contain a lot of symbolic visual material like icons uh, from ancient cultures can be found in these life formations as if these signatures 
these visual signatures that we can see were related to the thought forms or sound vibrations we were expressing at the time. I, I think it's more than just a little coincidental that those lights move so particularly uh, during some of the, the, the moments when you talk about a piano manifesting out of thin air and uh, your, the smiles on your children's faces. Did you find that just a more, little more than coincidental? Well, yeah, it's in, it's intriguing, and it's a whole new layer of, uh, you know, exploring. Does it make a difference if we're uh, live together in a session? Well, physically, we, we, were, we were apart. The recording was made by telephone, but the, it seemed to me that, you know, the vibrations were, were uh, we were accessing them. Uh, I mean, the sound waves were in my, were in here in my space, you know, via the telephone. Mm-hmm. And I think you know what was most intriguing to me, and, and maybe to someone who believes in synchronicities like Carl Jung, was that these events were occurring. They seemed to be timed with the subjects that you were talking about. That the the, the lights were particularly bright around cer- certain topics. They were particularly active, as if they were punctuating the conversation, providing a visual element that we didn't uh, necessarily access because it was it was in infrared. It wasn't invisible light, but uh, it helps us to. It helps us to reflect and, and, and gives us gives us material to consider or data that we can consider as as part of our exploration. That our, these ideas, how how highly charged they might be for us, and how you know how uh, how world changing they might be. You know uh, the butterfly effect of of quantum physics that says that the butterfly flaps its wings in, in the in the Amazon and it it makes the rains fall in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know these micro uh, events. That we that are manifesting when you play the piano and you express your creativity, does that manifest as greater cre- creativity somewhere else in the world? Well, indeed, and I think today has just been the first level of exploration. I'm now fully intrigued. You have my complete attention, and I want to follow up. Maybe we can even get you on next week and and delve deeper and see what we can uncover in the meantime. All right. Well, that would be fantastic. Okay. I will see what I can do about juggling around the schedule, and uh, we're already out of time. I can't believe it just flew by. Um, John Kelly has been my guest, Reverse Speech Therapy, Live Paranormal Investigation in the moment, and we'll do hopefully more next week right here on Contact. And if you missed any of the show, newsforthesoul.com. Wow. What a show. What a trip. Thanks, John, for being here. Great to be with you. All right, guys. Have a good one. We'll see you next week right here on News for the Soul. And now you get this shamanic perspective of what is there in an etheric form in these particular power places. So it's a really powerful experience, an amazing experience. You know, as practical as I am about those kinds of things, I will tell you that I personally witnessed those lights above uh, the horizon steps were six feet high you know they were like they were just huge that they weren't human steps it was some sort of a ceremonial site which looked very much like it had to be a site or could have been a site where something came and landed there Welcome to News for the Soul. This is Daniel Brinkley. This is 
host, Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Okay, everybody, take a deep breath. We know that we choose to come to this world, and we're chosen to come to this world, and we've come for breath. We breathe in for ourselves and out for spiritual enrollment. And as we breathe these moments, let's open up our heart and open up our souls, and let the true awareness of News for the Soul make its impact now and forever. Good evening. I hope you're on. This is News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Back after a little bit of a hiatus in an adventure in Peru, we're back, and he's with me here today, the person we were in Peru with, Dr. David Morehouse, former CIA remote viewer, and we're going to be talking about what happened in Peru. Welcome back, David. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> yeah. At this point, it's good to be anywhere. So it was good to be in Peru. What an adventure. I'm not even sure where to start. But how about at the beginning of why remote viewers were in Peru? Well, it's an annual trip that we make, and, and the reason we go there primarily is because we're trying to offer kind of an extraordinary experience for both novice remote viewers uh, all the way up to the advanced remote viewers, many of whom were there were very advanced, and of course we had a few people who this was their, they had done the home study course with us, or they some of them had just taken the basic course, but the idea is to take remote viewers there to go to this really wonderful, magical, beautiful country of Peru and various sets of circumstances from from temple work to actually standing on the ground of sacred sites. And the the intention in being there is for a, a collective experience as well as the individual experience, but primarily for this collective experience, for viewers to go there to be together in these places and for us to remote view these sacred sites, you know, to open ourselves by doing these various initiations and sacred ceremonies at these sacred temples and then to remote view a particular power place or sacred site and to carry into that particular place as we stand there physically this non-physical awareness of what it is that we perceive there, this beyond the surfaces, if if you will, experience of being remote viewing perspective. That gives you this, uh, you know, you, you go into it and we, we give you the old archaeological perspective which says, you know, here, here's what we know about the Incan times and, you know, maybe a new archaeological perspective if one exists for that particular site which says, here's what we know about Incan times and here's what we know about pre-Incan times and what may have existed here. Then you have this collective uh, remote viewing experience, you know, using focus questions to try to answer specific things. And then you have Jorge Delgado, who is, you know, the shaman which goes with us. And, and now you get this shamanic perspective of what is there in an etheric form in these particular power places. So it's a really powerful experience, an amazing experience. And now the two years that we've done it, it's just been, I mean, you just can't ask for a better group of people. You just can't ask for a more focused and dynamic and purposeful, committed, loving and compassionate gathering of people that are there in these places, all pulling together to to master this collective and as well as individual experience. And you were there. 
Oh, God, yes, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> there you came out of Vancouver down at sea level where you were and stepped into 12,500 feet. That's the first time I saw you when you when you showed up there. Yes, I uh Walking quite from... slowly and lightheaded. Very slowly, but three steps at a time. <laughs> I was looking at the footage, and you can hear me wheezing up the hill to catch up with you guys. Well, you just put music to it. it yeah, <laughs> very loud music. Um, you know, that's the thing is, is it was see, we sort of idealize the spiritual aspect of these sites, and ooh, Machu Picchu, you know, and it's a real spiritual warrior track, almost really. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and But again, you know, I, I can't say it enough. You, you see the pictures of places like Machu Picchu. You see the places of pictures of like uh, Olete Tambo, Silistani, Wiracocha Temple, the Monkey Temple, the Moon Temple, the Sun Temple, the, all of these things that are Wanapichu, you know, and the different islands that we went to that see to visit the Oro people to, uh, you know, and even to uh, Chiricacao. I, I think I didn't say that correctly. I never do. But to make that trek that we made, which is 60 kilometers, and, you know, increases of anywhere from six to 7,000 feet in elevation. It was an amazing journey and a journey that which, which normally is not made by such a diverse group. I mean, we had all ages, we had all sizes, we had all levels of experience of backpackers and, uh, you know, hikers. And then... You yeah, talked about Chikakiro. 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 The new Machu Picchu site. Yeah, which... Uh, you know, it's so little of it yet excavated, but and so difficult to get to uh, that not many people go. I mean, not many people. What this group experienced was something that, again, not many people have an opportunity to see because no group the size of our group goes there. And uh, usually the groups that go there are, are smaller groups of two or three or four experienced backpackers. Mm -hmm. I was researching on the Internet today, actually, about it. Uh, a recent article that was posted had quoted something to the effect of, you know, less than 100 people this century have set foot on that site. Well, 120 now or so. After our group, it was, it was a significant jump in the number, you know, that they had recorded. So Yeah, and again, all age groups, all experience levels, all sizes, all, I mean, it was that was what was so amazing about it. And it, it hadn't been this kind of a group with this these kinds of people. It just, I just don't think it would have ever happened. I mean, the guides were quite amazed. And so were the, the you know, the, the wranglers that, that handled the mule team that carried our supplies and other kinds of things were just, uh, and, you know, in talking to Jorge later, they were just all amazed that this group pulled together, took care of each other, uh, and made it through that <laughs> entire, in you know, that entire journey, that expedition to go see this place. And even though time was limited for us once we were there, uh, we still had time to go there and have this sacred ceremony and initiation and time to meditate and be there, even though it was only a couple of hours as opposed to a half a day or a whole day, you know. Next mm -hmm. time. Well, I think once we all figured out where we were going and how hard the trek was, I think we were all amazed that we made it, actually. So it's not something that people should be taking lightly. I, I want to stress that. But it was worth, worth the trek for various reasons. But before we get into that part of the trip, and kind of unveil what happened there and what we found there. Getting back to how you're saying about how we went into these sacred sites, these thousands-of-year-old sacred sites, and not just seeing them but feeling them and kind of remote viewing into them yeah. was quite profound, and a lot of us had, you know, a lot of profound moments in there. Yeah. 
And it's, you know, the big validation of that, of how profound it is, watching this man born and raised there, Jorge Luis Delgado, to, to watch him, this shaman, to watch his responses to what remote viewers are producing. That's, that's really most of the fun of it for me, is not only watching what, what happens for the viewers and seeing what, you know, what occurs for them and how excited they are about what they found and, and how, uh, how confirming it is for them, especially as they walk the ground that they were remote viewing hours earlier, or when they are remote viewing on the ground in which they're standing but being asked to look beyond the surfaces as remote viewers. What's best for me, just as a remote viewing teacher, is watching just the excitement in this shaman saying, yes, that's what we know, yes, oh my God, yes, you know, that's what we know, and oh yes, you, you, you answered this question and you came up with this piece of information, and he did that so often, and he feels so connected to these people who come from all walks of life uh, and all over the world to be here as part of this group who then, you know, open to this understanding that just for him is, is a big validation for him and for a validation for his life's work and, and uh, the things that he has been taught throughout his life, which is why he does so much stuff for you guys in terms of not simply giving a demonstration of a ceremony, but really performing an initiation and a rite of passage and preparing you for new levels of understanding. That's, which is, that's his commitment to the remote viewers that are there as opposed to just you know, walking there and, and having an opportunity to listen to a shaman give his perspective, right? You get to participate in, in this pulling back of this gossamer veil separating two worlds. That's a, that's a powerful journey. So how is it that you came to choose working with Jorge, and does he have an understanding of what remote viewing is? Yeah, he has a really good understanding. The first year we were there, we, we went with the intention of teaching a class there, so Jorge sat in on the class, and again, it was just a validation and a confirmation for him of, of what it is that he felt he already knew and was capable of doing. He's been at this for many years since as a young child. His training as a shaman began around the age of 11. But how I happened upon Jorge, or there came a meeting between the two of us, was really because of Theron and Marianne Mayo who have been going to Peru for many years now. And they made developed a friendship with Jorge. And this friendship with Jorge really became a triad between Don Miguel Ruiz and Jorge Delgado and me. And we just shared ideas and concepts about what could be done, what should be done. And Jorge uh, has begun preparing this book, which Don Miguel is endorsing and or writing the foreword for, and uh, which I am endorsing. And it is a book, a story of his journey, his progression, his learning. And when in remote viewing was introduced to him by Theron and Marianne Mail. Uh, the kind of the coordinators for these journeys, these two journeys we've made. He just opened immediately to it and was really excited about it. And then when he saw what the remote viewers were able to produce last year and this year, then his excitement level just continues to increase exponentially because it's opening so much, opening to so much more possibility for him. I mean, he, he really sees remote viewers as a tool with which to to increase his awareness, to open new pieces of understanding, to, to provide data that is not otherwise available except through shamanic tradition. I mean, through shamanic tale and lore and sharing of stories. I mean, they're sharing stories about etheric flames and the colors of a flame, and then in the blind, viewers will go in and look at this thing and come back with uh, the presence of a flame and uh, the color of the flame, which 
uh, validates what the shamanic legends have been. So it's not that one replaces the other, it's just that they begin to augment and complement one another, and that's that's what he really loves about it, as well as do I. So when we were going, I mean, it was a marathon of sacred site after sacred site. I mean, there's so many there, and we probably only saw a smidge of what's really there, but many of us were experiencing things that were beyond words, you know, and I noticed that you were there participating right along with us in these ceremonies, and some of them seemed pretty moving for you as well. Do you want to share a couple of what those experiences were, that more well, moving, profound experiences? I mean, mostly what, what happens when I come there, I mean, sure, I'd love to share with, with you. Most of what happens when I get there is I make it really clear to the to the participants that my job in being there as a remote viewing teacher is not to be there necessarily to each time participate in all of the ceremonies with you. My job is to is to be a videographer and a photographer along with other individuals because we really try to keep it. We want to make a really great video record of the experience and turn that into a DVD, which we give to all the participants, and a really great photographic record of that, which we give to all the participants. And so often when you're in the circles and you're doing the other things and doing that work, you know, there's a guy running around the outside doing the video and the photos and stuff like that, which is usually me. Uh, occasionally another member of the group, but we're trying to get that group experience and cohesion put together there. But in one particular place, most people recognize that I I see that as my calling in this particular place, is not to be the teacher. The teacher is Jorge, and and I am there to to be just the, the leader of this expedition and to really serve in a kind of a practical role. But Theron walked over to me at this place called the Monkey Temple, which is where the the Heart Rock is, and, and as one of this this temple where we were doing this preparatory work, all of us were there. And and Theron came to me and said very quietly, "Why don't you just turn the camera off and why don't you just be in this place because it's a really special place." And of course, I'm kind of looking at him like, "What do you mean turn the camera off? I, we have the camera has to be rolling, you know." But he just reaches up gently and takes the camera from me and you know turns the camera off and. And I lie down on this, just in the grass, in the ground of this particular place. And I am just suddenly so overwhelmed with love and compassion and just enveloped by the spirit and the energy of this place that um, tears begin to just pour from my eyes just uncontrollably. Uh, And then in just being there in, in maybe 20, 30 minutes in this ground, I just felt so much a part of and connected to something that was so amazing and it happened so quickly that it was something that every human being ought to experience once in their life just this this unconditional love from this pachamama from you know from from the earth itself from this connection to the earth the inner world the present world the upper world the cosmos itself this this authentic aspect of oneself being there on that ground and then to to be able to go forward to to the heart rock and to embrace the heart rock with jorge uh, behind you preparing and initiating and and uttering the incantations as you are there these ancient thousands of years these words have been spoken at this particular place again there is this experience that is just overwhelming this this connection 